Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sonia. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Updates in the Treatment of Acute Myelogenous Leukemia, or AML. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other blood cancer and cancer organizations as well. And it's because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call. So we have over 256 participants on the call. So there are a lot of you from both urban, rural, and suburban areas and frontier communities as well. And we also have international participants from Canada, Caracas, India, Portugal, and United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call. And uh, it's really credit to each of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. Today's program is supported by the Celgene Corporation, a grant from Genentech, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, and Novartis Oncology. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Mary Elizabeth Percival. Dr. Percival is Assistant Professor, Division of Hematology, University of Washington School of Medicine, Assistant Member, Clinical Research Division, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, and Attending Physician, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. Dr. Percival is going to be addressing the role of clinical trials, including BEAT AML, Master Trial, and Clinical Trial Updates, Symptoms, Side Effect, and Pain Management Tips, key questions to ask your healthcare team, and quality of life concerns. It gives me great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Percival. Thanks very much, uh, Dr. Messner. So I'm first going to speak a little bit about AML um, as the diagnosis, and then I'll jump into um, talking about clinical trials. So AML is a cancer of the blood and bone marrow. The abnormal leukemia cells are called blasts, which are found in every patient, um, every person, but um, develop abnormal growth advantages so that there are too many of them in AML, either in the blood, the bone marrow, or both. There is no staging for AML, which makes it quite different than other kinds of cancers because the blood and bone marrow are an interconnected system throughout the body. And the title includes the name acute because it is something that happens very suddenly. So it's not generally thought that somebody has had it for a long time before they present. There are about um, 20,000 or a little more cases every year in the United States of AML. So it is not um, nearly at the same prevalence as other types of cancers solid tumors such as breast or lung cancer. The median age at diagnosis is somewhere in the late 60s. Most patients will develop what's called de novo AML, meaning that they haven't had um, anything beforehand that would predispose them to getting AML, but somewhere around 15 to 20% of patients have either a prior hematologic disorder, another bone marrow problem such as myelodysplastic syndrome or uh, a myeloproliferative neoplasm, 
or will have received prior chemotherapy for another cancer or autoimmune disease and have a therapy-related AML. Uh, there are standard treatments for AML, um, but in general, it's really important to try to come up with better options because our treatments for this disease are not as good as we would like them to be. So the role of clinical trials is really important in managing both newly diagnosed patients and patients whose disease unfortunately relapses or doesn't respond to initial treatment. Part of the role of clinical trials is to help discover new treatments that can be useful for treating the disease, perhaps with more efficacy, meaning that they are better at doing the job that we want them to do, and lower toxicity than previous options. Clinical trials can help patients currently as well as future patients, so it's not always that a participant is doing their part for science and not receiving any clinical benefit for themselves because they may receive benefit. The different phases of clinical trials have different goals and are structured differently. So a phase one study is primarily um, often the first time that a drug is being used in a particular disease, occasionally the first time a drug has been studied in humans, though all drugs have been tested in animals before they move to humans. And the goal is to try to see if the drug is safe. A phase two clinical trial starts to make sure that the drug is effective and looks at efficacy often as one of the outcomes, and that is used to make a decision about whether to move on to a phase three study, which is usually a study where patients are randomized to receive one arm that's a control or another arm that has either the control plus the study drug, sometimes the study drug alone, depending on how it's structured. Sometimes these phase three studies are blinded meaning that the recipient of the drug and often the treating physician are not aware whether the patient is receiving the study drug or not. Uh, but it's pretty much considered to be not ethical to randomize somebody to receiving no treatment. So usually there will be some treatment depending on the exact structure of the study and what the outcome is that is being examined. It's important to note that all clinical research is voluntary and no one can coerce patients to participate in clinical research. Their physicians will still take care of them and offer them standard options even if they are not interested in participating. One study that has gotten a lot of attention recently for AML patients is called the BEAT AML study which is sponsored by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and there is a lot of information on their website that discusses the trial and how to get involved. The goal is to use molecular profiling, so specific data about a particular patient's leukemia, to determine if there are targeted treatment options. And the patients that are being enrolled are those who have newly diagnosed AML, so they can't have received previous treatment for their AML, and they have to be 60 years of age or older. There is an abstract that is being presented at the American Society of Hematology annual meeting, which will take place next month in Orlando. And so far, 395 patients have enrolled in this study. 
Not everybody has then enrolled on what they call sub-studies to receive targeted therapy, but about 60% of patients have. And when they look at the patients who enrolled in one of the sub-studies versus patients who received standard care, it did seem like the survival was improved. Specific information is still not available about which of the arms seems like it's the best, and the study is dynamic by nature in terms of how it's constructed with different arms opening and closing at different times. So it's going to be a long time before we have all of the information about this study and whether it's actually going to provide benefits for patients, but it does answer, excuse me, it does ask a lot of great questions that have not been answered yet. There have been a lot of drugs that have been approved for the treatment of AML in the past two and a half years, starting in 2017. There were eight drugs that were approved for the treatment of AML, which is a lot since the previous drug that was approved for AML was in the year 2000, so there was a 17-year drought. There are some issues with the newly approved drugs that I think are important for patients to, and their physicians to consider and be aware of, even if it is the right decision for a patient to receive one of the new drugs. A lot of them have been studied only in phase one and two studies, so they haven't gotten to that phase three level yet. And sometimes they have not been studied in combination, so they've been approved as a single agent where treating physicians might think that they would be more effective if they were combined with another standard drug. The hierarchy of which drug to use when is not really clear. You can imagine that the field has changed with now eight new drugs where there used to be none, and so figuring out how to prioritize them and which patients will have the most benefit from the drugs is not yet clear, so we hope that it will be in the future. There are also a lot of areas where we still need to work on research, and this is where the role of clinical trials is particularly important. One area is something that's called MRD, or measurable residual disease. The goal of treatment is to try to get a patient into a remission, but sometimes even if they meet the criteria for a remission, there will still be a small amount of leukemia that's detectable. And that can be very difficult to completely get rid of. It can also affect uh, how patients respond to treatments later, such as treatments um, with a bone marrow transplant, if that's an option, or even response to future chemotherapy. Another area for future research is dealing with patients who are older when they are diagnosed with AML. It does seem like there are some distinctions with AML in terms of how older patients present and some of the characteristics of their leukemia that they have, but they also tend to be a more vulnerable patient population who often will have other medical problems, comorbidities, that make it challenging to offer some of the standard treatments that would be available uh, for younger patients. Another area for future research that I alluded to before was patients whose disease has relapsed or has not responded to the therapy that they have received previously, especially if that happens after a bone marrow transplant. And then I think there's a lot of interest in trying to think about 
some of the cellular therapies that are not related to transplant, such as CAR T cells, which have been important and approved so far by the FDA for the treatment of diseases like lymphoma and uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, but which are not ready for prime time in AML yet. Uh, moving on next, I think that the symptoms and side effects are sometimes difficult to distinguish between what is from the treatment for AML versus the problems with the low blood counts that often characterize AML at its baseline. But each of the cells in the body that are contained in the blood have normal function, and when they are low, then there can be problems such as infection or shortness of breath, particularly with exertion or bleeding problems. The chemotherapies that are typically used for AML can lead to problems with nausea or vomiting, can also lead to problems with uh, hair loss. Pain is not commonly an issue, and I think it's important to note that we have a lot of really great supportive care mechanisms that are in place. Particularly, there have been a lot of advances in dealing with some of the problems with nausea and vomiting, so that is generally not a huge problem for patients. I did also want to talk about questions to ask your physician. I think one important thing is to ask about whether any of the newly approved drugs are appropriate and why. I think talking about the new drugs and asking whether they will improve quality of life is important. I think trying to figure out whether something like a bone marrow transplant, also called a hematopoietic cell transplant, is recommended is something to definitely ask your doctor. Right now, there isn't a lot of uh, role for maintenance therapy with a few exceptions, but after the standard chemotherapy is done, is there a role for maintenance therapy? What clinical trials might be available for your condition? And then a question that I commonly get asked is whether uh, a patient should seek a second opinion. And I often say that if you're considering seeking a second opinion, you certainly should. In rare circumstances, um, though more common with AML than other kinds of cancers, treatment really needs to happen urgently, and there isn't a lot of time to get a second opinion, but sometimes there, there can be time. And I think it's important to try to have questions asked and answered before treatment um, starts because it's hard to go back after that once treatment has already started. In terms of quality of Hello, am I on the line now? Yes. Okay. Sorry about that. I'm not sure what happened with the discontinuation of the line. But in terms of quality of life concerns, I think it's really important to discuss that with your physician and care team because it is a big change, a life-changing thing to get a diagnosis of AML. It's really important to expect the unexpected in terms of treatment of AML, and I think also emotional and caregiver support is very important. So making sure that your caregiver can help support you, but also making sure that the caregivers get support. So that was all that I was planning to talk about, Dr. Mesner, so I'll turn it back over to you. 
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Percival. That was really outstanding, and uh, I want to thank you for your presentation. And um, I now um, I'm going to ask you to just um, address again um, a little bit about the or just an overview of acute um, myelogenous leukemia in a little more detail, the current treatment approaches, including precision medicine and targeted treatments, transplantation as a treatment option for AML, and new therapies. Um, and I'm going to now turn the program back over to Dr. Percival, um, who's going to um, address these other topics as well. Thank you. generally relatively easy to make looking at that percentage of blast, the abnormal leukemia cells, whether that's in the blood or the bone marrow or occasionally as part of a tissue biopsy. There is risk stratification that goes on right when somebody is diagnosed with AML. So there's testing that's done by the pathology lab to try to figure out what particular characteristics a person's leukemia has. And leukemia is a very heterogeneous disease, meaning that one person's AML is not exactly like another person's AML. Part of the other part of, excuse me, part of the risk stratification that goes on is also done outside the pathology lab, more in the clinic, to try to figure out what the patient's functional status is and what kind of treatment they're going to be able to tolerate. So once the diagnosis of AML is made, for fit patients, the next step is going to be induction chemotherapy. After induction chemotherapy, uh, we try to figure out if patients have relatively good characteristics of their leukemia, meaning that they are likely to respond well to chemotherapy alone and can go on to receive cycles of what are called consolidation or post-remission chemotherapy or whether they need to have the best chance of cure by moving on to an allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplant or bone marrow transplant. For patients who are less fit when they are diagnosed, then sometimes we need to think about whether there are less intensive therapies that are available for patients if they're not able to tolerate intensive induction chemotherapy, which generally requires hospital stay or whether there might be a clinical trial that would be a good option for a less fit patient, or sometimes patients may uh, only want to receive supportive care alone. Um, so once induction chemotherapy happens, generally the most common regimen is something called 7 plus 3. We can uh, await uh, count recovery, which is usually about 28 days after induction chemotherapy, and then patients can uh, undergo a bone marrow biopsy. Um, uh, an allogeneic transplant is often uh, part of the treatment algorithm for patients. Um, where they get a new donor immune system with the goal of leading to a graft versus leukemia effect so that the new donor immune system will try to get rid of any residual leukemia cells. Some kinds of transplant, if they are what are called myeloablative, the goal of that intensive regimen that's given right before the transplant is to wipe out any old leukemia cells that may still be residual and hiding there. Sometimes treatment will involve the addition of some of the targeted therapies that I mentioned previously, some of those that are being studied in beat AML and then some that are already approved for the treatment of AML, things like FLT3 inhibitors or IDH inhibitors. Um, 
But I think that uh, the, the new drugs have a lot of potential and really need to be discussed uh, closely with the care team. Um, so, Dr. Mesner, I'm going to turn it over to you and I think uh, possibly to Dr. Ravandi now, and so I'll, I'll let, let you um, take it from here. Okay. Thank you so much, um, and thank you very much uh, for that excellent presentation, Dr. Um, Dr. Percival. And um, Dr. Ravandi, um, welcome to the call, and I'm going to introduce you. Dr. Ravandi, um, Dr. Fahad Ravandi is... Janice and Stephen A. Lasher, Professor of Medicine, Chief Section of Department of Therapeutics, Department of Leukemia, the University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Ravandi is going to address uh, transplantation as a treatment option for AML and new therapies. It's my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ravandi. Hi, uh, good afternoon, and um, very happy to be here. Uh, so I uh, sorry I had I was in clinic and uh, I missed the early part of the talk, but uh, I understand that uh, uh, you have had an introduction to acute myeloid leukemia, uh, which is actually the most common acute leukemia in the U.S. Um, and uh, for many years uh, we had been uh, treating patients with acute. Uh, myeloid leukemia with the same uh, standard uh, induction regimen of uh, cytarabine and uh, donorubicin. I think what uh, Dr. Uh, the previous uh, speaker referred to as 3 plus 7, uh, but um, I'm happy to let you know that uh, there has been a lot of uh, new developments in the field over the last uh, uh, several years, uh, particularly two or three years, uh, when we had not had any uh, new drugs approved for AML uh, for at least a couple of decades. But over the last two or three years, we have had uh, several new drug approvals and I, I can also tell you that over the last um, uh, 15 to 20 years, we have begun to understand the mechanisms behind developing acute uh, myeloid leukemia better. Uh, and uh, a lot of this is related to um, factors such as um, uh, toxins causing changes in the genes and chromosomes of the cells who become leukemic cells. And uh, with the identification and better description of these uh, events, uh, we have also been able to develop new drugs, some of which, as I mentioned to you earlier, have been already FDA approved, that are going to uh, change the management of AML um, in the future for the majority of patients. Uh, as uh, mentioned before, historically, uh, we only relied on chemotherapy, and uh, we treated patients with an induction regimen, uh, mm -hmm. trying to uh, get rid of as much leukemia as possible and uh, put patients to a state we call complete remission, which is essentially a state where um, the pathologist cannot see any leukemic cells in the bone marrow, 
and the patient's blood counts come back to normal. Uh, unfortunately, we have realized that this state of complete remission uh, is uh, not equivalent to cure because many patients uh, relapse. And in order to prevent relapse, uh, what we have been doing uh, is to give what we call consolidation courses of chemotherapy. And there have been many studies and uh, different uh, uh, strategies, but essentially consolidation uh, uses uh, higher doses of cytarabine, uh, one of the two drugs that were, are used in induction, uh, based on the fact that cytarabine has been the best drug to treat AML uh, up to date, uh, up to recently. And then uh, at the completion of comp uh, consolidation, uh, some patients uh, are offered allogeneic stem cell transplant, and others uh, are essentially just watched. I think the previous speaker talked about maintenance, and uh, there have been attempts on developing maintenance strategies in AML, uh, but unfortunately, uh, none of them until uh, very recently have shown to be beneficial in, in improving a survival outcome. Uh, there is a report of a potential study of an oral agent that may uh, show uh, positive results, but that's only initially as a preliminary report, and uh, we may hear more about it in the upcoming uh, annual American Society of Hematology meeting. Uh, but uh, as, I, as mentioned, there has not been a um, established effective uh, maintenance uh, up to date. Uh, however, that does not mean that uh, patients should not participate in clinical trials of maintenance strategies and these are generally uh, done with agents that should not have a lot of side effects and are easily tolerated by the patients. Uh, as I mentioned, some patients are offered allogeneic stem cell transplant, um, and that means that a donor, uh, which is commonly a sibling, if they are a match for a patient, or if this is not available, an unrelated donor uh, uh, provides uh, what we call stem cells that um, are uh, then infused to the patient, just like almost like a blood transfusion. And this has been shown to be beneficial uh, in uh, uh, many patients who receive it. And the decision to do this is really based on the type of the gene and chromosome abnormalities that we identify in the bone marrow of the patients at diagnosis. And also, obviously, depends on, on the physical status of the patient. Uh, if the patient has a lot of other medical problems, they may not be suitable for this uh, procedure, mainly because it can have... Um, uh, significant toxicity and even the potential for causing harm. Um, so
So, um, uh, as I mentioned, um, uh, there have been new drug approvals over the last uh, two or three years, and um, several of these drugs are oral agents uh, that, uh, in some situations, are added to the chemotherapy. And uh, one of the uh, biggest uh, developments, uh, particularly in older patients with AML, has been uh, the approval of a regimen that combines an oral agent uh, called uh, venetoclax with uh, uh, drugs called uh, azacitidine or decidabine, uh, which have been drugs that have been around uh, for a while, uh, but uh, as single agents, they are not highly effective. But the combination of these drugs with uh, venetoclax has been very, uh, uh, almost surprisingly, very effective, uh, producing high responses as high as 70%, 75%. And uh, these responses uh, uh, produce prolonged survival. Uh, uh, this uh, regimen is very well tolerated in general, uh, so this is really uh, has been a change in the management of these patients, although this advantage has not yet been shown in a what we call a randomized trial, but uh, despite that, the FDA has approved the regimen uh, for uh, initial therapy of older unfit patients. Uh, I think we will hear a lot more about this regimen in the future, uh, and uh, just in my own practice, this has been significantly safer and perhaps as effective, if not more effective, than the traditional chemotherapy. But we will have to see uh, if this becomes a standard of care for all older patients, and it's not impossible that it will be. Uh, there are other oral agents. Uh, I think the previous speaker mentioned IDH mutations and FLT3 mutations, uh, for which we now have effective oral agents that can uh, be used either as a single oral agent on their own or combined with chemotherapy, and there are a number of clinical trials. Uh, so I think at the end of my talk, I would just mention that there are many clinical trials all around U.S. in various institutions, and uh, I would highly recommend participation in these trials uh, because um, uh, they generally uh, are designed to uh, uh, produce better or potentially better outcomes, at least uh, in the settings that they are being evaluated in. I think that's the end of uh, my uh, discussion. And go going back to Dr. Mesner. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Avandi. That was really outstanding and excellent. And so we now, um, I'm going to say a few words about cancer care services, and then we do have then time for questions. So please um, think of your questions. Some of you are already posting questions, but if you haven't been on the call before, our, our operator will give you instructions in terms of how to uh, ask questions. Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide um, help to people throughout the country, from the United States, 
Um, and people internationally also do contact as well. Um, so in terms of the United States, we do offer practical and financial assistance, and we do have a copay foundation. So um, there are many other copay foundations out there as well. Um, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, for example, is one, and there are many others. So if, we, if you were to call us and we didn't have it or to call any of the other organizations, we would refer back and forth to each other since we do know what each of us has open at the time when you call. Um, in addition, um, so we do also offer uh, counseling services or a chance to talk to someone about coping with AML or with any type of cancer. Actually, we do provide services to all cancers um, at all ages. So we have um, programs for young adults and middle-aged adults and older adults. And older adults include lots of different people at all different spectrums along that the decades of being an older person. Um, and so we have services for caregivers as well, uh, support programs. And we also um, have a Cancer Care for Kids program, which helps children, primarily children who um, have a family member with cancer, and perhaps no one quite knows how to explain to the child about the, the parent, grandparents, guardian, uncle, aunt, um, teachers uh, cancer, and so often people call upon us to help with that. Um, that's an important program we offer as well. Um, we offer these education programs because we believe that information is a powerful tool to cope with, uh, with cancer, with any type of cancer, with AML. And that's why we do these programs, so that you actually have information that you might not have had before, or perhaps it adds to, your, to the knowledge that you have already. Um, it's our hope. And we also do have uh, publications, fact sheets and publications that you can access from us. Um, so with that being said, um, and we simply, I should say, we're simply a, either a phone call away by calling our Hope Line or our website. And after this program, um, you will be getting a probably on Monday an evaluation form, and the evaluation form will include all the resources you can use to, um, that we've been mentioning during the call today. So whatever resources any of us mentioned, and then any resources that we feel in addition would be helpful to you, you'll be getting in addition to the evaluation, so you'll be armed with all sorts of information to use. So now we do have time um, for questions. I'm going to ask, um, uh, no, um, Sonia, to go ahead and explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star than one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then one. And so we have a question from one of our online participants, and this question is for um, Dr. Percival. Um, how can I better manage the side effects of chemotherapy? Um, I think that's a really good question. It's a little bit difficult to answer without knowing the specifics of the chemotherapy um, or the specifics of the symptoms, but I would encourage um, the patient to speak to their uh, physician and to the nurse uh, team that's helping out uh, with the care. There are a lot of choices right now for anti-nausea medications. I mentioned that a little bit when I was speaking. There are very good anti-nausea medicines, but what's right for one patient might not be right for another. One patient might not need any anti-nausea medications. Another person might need several different kinds. And they do have different side effects, too. Um, for example, ondansetron, which is commonly used, can cause headaches in patients that may make it so that it's not the right choice for somebody who has a history of headaches. 
Um, but some of the the other things like fatigue, um, I think, can be addressed by um, working on um, trying to keep up some kind of an exercise regimen, trying to keep as fit and active as possible, because that will definitely help people be able to handle whatever challenges come their way in terms of the disease and the treatment for the disease. Another thing that's really important is working on nutrition. It can be very difficult to eat if you are not feeling well and not having a normal level of activity, but there's very little that's under your control during this time um, when you are working on expecting the unexpected, and exercise and nutrition can really help out a lot. So um, trying to take advantage of the resources that may be at the center where you're receiving treatment, like a nutritionist or a physical therapy if you need help with, um, working on trying to come up with a good regimen can be really helpful. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Avanti, do you want to add anything to that? No, I think that was said very well, and um, I totally agree. Okay, thank you. Um, and, and we have another question um, from one of our um, online participants, um, and this will be for Dr. Ravandi. Um, I'm scheduled for my transplant in about a week. Um, so um, how bad is it to have high ferritin levels? Is it something I should be worried about or worth it to delay the transplant? So high what level? Um, S-S-E-R-R-A-T-I-N. S-S-E-R-R-A-T-I-N. You mean C-R-E-A-T-I-N? S-E-R-R-A-T-I-N? S-E-R-R-A-T-I-N. I, I assume you're talking about serum creatinine. Uh, if I mean, they're also depending on what how high it means, but that's I am sure something that uh, the transplant doctor is evaluating and is fully aware. And uh, uh, I, I am sure that uh, he will take it into account and will try to correct. Um, which is very possible to a level that is acceptable for a transplant. So to discuss it with but but uh, in general, the transplant physicians uh, will not uh, proceed to a transplant unless they feel that the benefits outweigh the risks. And if there are any significant abnormalities, they try to correct that before uh, proceeding with transplant. Thank you. And, and Dr. Purcell, do you want to add anything to that? Or? Yes, I wonder if perhaps the patient meant ferritin, F-E-R-R-I-T-I-N. Oh. Um, I'm not sure. Um, that's a marker of, um, it, well, it can happen to be increased for a variety of reasons, but sometimes if patients have gotten a lot of red blood cell transfusions and have iron overload, um, it also, though, can be what's called an acute phase reactant and go up um, in the serum level um, if somebody has other problems like a cancer or inflammation or infection of some other kind. So that in and of itself isn't something that typically our transplanters would use as a reason to delay transplant. 
There are ways of dealing with it, um, giving treatments such as iron chelators if it's thought to be related to iron overload. Um, but I, I think it's a little bit difficult uh, to answer that question in isolation because usually there's something that's causing the ferritin to be high. So it's not that the number itself is of concern, it's what's causing it to be high that may need to be, the underlying problem may need to be addressed. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, in general, it's not, uh, if, if it is ferritin that uh, you're, uh, you're talking about, in general, uh, a high ferritin is not a contraindication to a transplant. Okay, excellent. Okay, thank you. And um, I think we have a telephone question now. Thank you. And our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Oh, thank you so much. I really am very interested in the seminar. Um, being a nurse and a social worker, but I was a 13-year breast cancer survivor, but my question is more apt to what we were talking about the first doctor, about the when you're having a side effects or you're having later on that you can get um, this illness from having particular chemotherapies. I'm wondering about the medications are adromycin and cytoxin and taxol. And if you had four months of adromycin and also of cytoxin, if the side effects later on that you can get, I heard that you can develop um, this illness. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, um, Stephanie, for those uh, questions. That's an excellent question. Uh, Dr. Purcell, do you want to address that? In general way. Um, sure. So with a lot of the different kinds of chemotherapy agents, uh, including some of the ones that were mentioned by the caller, there is um, a small but measurable increased risk of developing blood cancers, whether that's AML or myelodysplastic syndrome or less commonly other therapy-related myeloid neoplasms. Um, there isn't an upper limit on when that can develop. So anytime somebody has received previous chemotherapy or radiation um, and then develops a leukemia later, we would consider it to be a therapy-related leukemia. But commonly, if that's going to happen, it will happen usually within a couple of years for some agents, um, such as the topoisomerase inhibitors, including atoposide or uh, some of the anthracycline medications like um, donorubicin or doxorubicin. Um, and then later abnormalities can happen five to ten years usually after um, the exposure to the chemotherapy, something like cytoxan or other alkylating agents. Um, but usually after that, it, it becomes much less common. It, I should emphasize that it is already very uncommon, and so it's important to receive the treatment um, that is planned if you have another kind of cancer, like a breast cancer or a colon cancer or something like that. Dealing with the problem here and now with the cancer that a patient has is important, recognizing that there may be a risk of other things that happens in the future is important, but shouldn't be the primary deciding factor because it's really quite uncommon uh, to actually get a therapy-related AML, um, though it does happen. Oh, excellent. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Ravandi, do you want to add anything to that? Or? No, uh, but uh, the only thing is that, uh, as mentioned, it is not very common, but unfortunately therapy-related uh, AML is a little bit more difficult to treat than uh, regular AML, but not impossible. So, um, as mentioned, uh, chemotherapy and radiation can predispose to this, but not 
necessarily will, as in not everybody uh, who receives prior chemotherapy or radiation for other cancers develop this. Okay, thank you. And a question now from one of our online participants, and this will be for Dr. Vandi. Um, has Zemplexta, when used in combination with AZA, been shown to prevent relapse? To prevent relapse, uh, I mean, we have to, there is no study that has used this in a uh, sort of maintenance setting to prevent relapse. Uh, this is a regimen that I mentioned earlier that is now approved for older unfit patients with AML, uh, and it uh, has been uh, very useful and can be very effective, and in some subsets of uh, patients that has actually produced very long-lasting remissions uh, going three or four years in some of my uh, own personal uh, patients. Uh, so uh, is it specifically useful to prevent relapse? Uh, there is nothing to, um, uh, there's no data, there's no trials uh, that have looked at this, uh, so uh, one cannot say that. Cool. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Um, Percival, do you want to add anything? Um, sure. I guess I would just add that, um, yes, I agree with Dr. Ravondi that it can be a very effective regimen for treating AML patients. Um, the goal of the treatment is to get people, patients, into a complete remission. Um, so I, I, I agree with him that it hasn't been studied in the setting of patients who may have achieved a remission in another way, like maybe with intensive chemotherapy, and it hasn't really been studied as a maintenance regimen on top of that to prevent relapse. It is a regimen that generally somebody will continue on, um, getting repeated cycles of azacitidine and venetoclax for as long as they are tolerating it and as long as they are achieving some clinical benefit from it. So it, it's different than some of the other kinds of chemotherapy that we talk about where there's a more circumscribed time period in which patients receive treatment. So maybe they get induction for a month and then they get three or four cycles of post-remission chemotherapy that are about a month each and then they're done. This kind of regimen is something where patients will continue on, as Dr. Ravandi mentioned, for up to several years if they are continuing to tolerate the medicine and continuing to have a response. Thank you. Um, and um, we have another question from one of our um, online participants. Um, so, um, and this one would be for uh, Dr. Percival. I've been bruising easily ever since I finished chemotherapy. I've had several on my arms and legs. Does it ever go away, and is there anything I can do about it? And if you could answer this in a general way, because it's, you know, it's not specific, of course, to the type of chemo, but just anything you could say that would be helpful would be, I'm sure, helpful to our participants. Sure. I think that easy bruising can be caused by a lot of things. The thing that I worry most about um, in patients with a history of leukemia is whether this is 
somehow related to a low platelet count um, because when the platelets are low, patients can have easy bruising and easy bleeding. Sometimes the low platelet count can be a consequence of the leukemia, sometimes the chemotherapy used to treat the leukemia, sometimes a combination of both. So if a patient um, has has easy bruising after the end of therapy, I would definitely want to make sure that the platelet count had recovered to a level where I wouldn't expect there to be bleeding. Um, but there are other things that can cause easy bruising as patients get older, um, their skin thins somewhat, so a lot of older patients with or without a history of leukemia describe easy bruising. Additionally, Patients who have been on other medicines, sometimes things like steroids, can have easy bruising as well. So I, I don't know that it um, is directly related um, to any chemotherapy that the patient has received, but I would want to make sure that the blood counts looked normal before uh, saying that one way or another. Awesome. Thank you. And Dr. Bond, did you wish to add? Um... Again, no. Uh, in the setting of leukemia, Low platelets are the most common cause of uh, bruising, uh, and uh, but as mentioned, there are other factors that can uh, uh, predispose to bruising, such as steroids. But um, uh, I'm sure your physicians are going to be managing any potential underlying factors. But some of the bruising may be there for a while until you're fully in remission and not receiving any more therapy. Awesome. Thank you. So we definitely encourage you, and actually all the participants on the call who have asked questions or have questions is to actually go back to your treating healthcare team since, of course, they know you the very best and it would be really um, most helpful as well. But getting this information gives you a kind of maybe some things to talk about with your physician in a way that's different or more informed. Um, so um, with another question in front of our online um, uh, participants. Um, interesting question. It comes up in a lot of our programs, and I'm going to ask Dr. Ravandi if you could address this. I'm about to start chemo. How should I prepare? Um, so are there any things that people should do in preparing to start uh, chemo or treatment in general? Uh, that's uh, tough questions to answer because everybody is going to be preparing differently. Of course, mental Preparation is important. Uh, having support is very important. Um, uh, and um, other issues um, like uh, supportive factor issues, such as potential nausea and uh, other gastrointestinal problems, uh, there's things that your doctor can do to try to reduce those uh, side effects. And uh, as a person, I'm not sure if there's anything you can do per se yourself to prepare for <coughs> these potential side effects of chemotherapy. And um, um, generally, um, uh, obviously, uh, it's the patient uh, needs to have adequate nutrition uh, despite the problems that chemotherapy may produce. Uh, so, um, uh, again, uh, preparing for chemotherapy, especially in the setting of leukemia, unfortunately most patients don't have a lot of time to even uh, 
think about preparing themselves, but um, um, overall, I think um, uh, the, your physician and the leukemia team that looks, looks after you will help to uh, man, uh, manage any potential problems over the course of therapy. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Percival, do you want to add anything? No, I, I don't uh, want to add too much. Just to say that I think that the working on good nutrition and exercise beforehand are important for every patient. Um, I think particularly at the beginning of treatment, trying to be in the best possible shape that you can be in is important, and that's different for each person, um, what that goal might be, but that will help you to withstand complications and deal uh, with what comes uh, in, in the best way possible. Thank you. And there's a question from one of our online participants again, another one, um, and it, the question is, um, so I've read, this is for Dr. Percival, I've read that new ther therapies have been approved for AML. Do these new therapies destroy both cancer and normal cells, or are they targeted? Um, that's a, a little bit uh, uh, of a complicated question to answer because it depends a lot on which of the new therapies you're discussing. So some of them are certainly targeted, things like the IDH inhibitors and uh, things like that that we discussed. Um, previously, um, I think the question is more complicated for things like the FLT3 inhibitors um, because there are probably some off-target effects that happen as well, other kinases and signaling pathways within the cancer cells that are blocked by some of these oral inhibitors. So they're not only targeting FLT3, but they may target other pathways within the cell that are abnormally activated in the leukemia cancer cells, so um, I'm, I'm not sure we always know exactly what the mechanism is. Uh, additionally, some of the drugs like venetoclax, the BCL2 inhibitor, um, and gemtuzumab osagamicin, which is also called Mylotarg, um, these drugs, uh, you know, do, do have targets that they are working on, but sometimes they end up leading to low blood counts, um, what's called myelosuppression, uh, because they are targeting non-cancer cells as well. Um, so I, I think that um, we've made a lot of advances in terms of having the ability to target certain things, but I think we do still have a long way to come in terms of not having any off-target effects and really being able to attack only the cancer cell. And part of that is because uh, the leukemia is uh, different in different patients, and so some factors may be important in one patient versus another, um, et cetera. So I, I think that we've made a lot of advances but still have room to go in our understanding of what pathways are affected by what drugs. Oh, thank you so much. And um, Dr. Vondi, do you want to add anything to that? No, I think that was very good. That's okay. And do we have a telephone question? So, um, uh, um, so um, uh, Sonia, do you want to? Thank you. And our next question comes from Ann R. Your line is now open. Okay, uh, I just had a question. I'm a uh, social worker and a college professor, and I wanted to know: Is AML caused by? like addictive behaviors of either alcohol or cigarette smoking? 
There, there is no data to suggest uh, uh, cigarette smoking or alcohol can predispose to develop uh, predispose to development of AML. Um, there are only certain uh, in the vast majority of patients. There is no obvious underlying factor. Uh, there are some patients, as we mentioned earlier, who develop these uh, conditions such as AML or related condition, MDS, after they have had chemotherapy or radiation for another cancer. And that's probably as direct a causative factor that we can think of in AML, except for, uh, obviously, uh, Radiation, uh, so for example, there was a significant rise in development of leukemias after the atomic bombs in Japan. Uh, there is association with benzene products, uh, so that's in petrochemical uh, setting. Uh, but cigarette smoking and alcohol have not been specifically linked to development of AML. Um, of course, uh, that doesn't mean they're uh, at all any good, and uh, I would highly recommend anyone to avoid cigarette smoking and to uh, minimize alcohol consumption. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, Dr. Um, Purcell, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, just one very minor side note. Um, I agree with everything that Dr. Ravandi said, but I think sometimes in states like mine where there is a lot of medical and otherwise marijuana use because it is approved, patients often ask whether it's okay to use medical marijuana products, and there is definitely an association with an increase in complications that can happen with AML, like fungal pneumonia in patients who use marijuana products by inhalation. So I think in general, um, drugs and alcohol and cigarette smoking can really complicate the care of patients. Additionally, sometimes um, various uh, insurance companies that might be paying for something like a bone marrow transplant um, want patients to show a period of of sobriety and sometimes abstaining also from cigarette smoking for a period of three to six months before the transplant. So while I don't think any of these behaviors um, lead to the cancer themselves, they can make the optimal treatment more challenging uh, for patients afterwards. So I think trying to live a clean and healthy lifestyle can be very important. Well, thank you. Well, this has been an amazing call. I must say I want to I want to thank our speakers. I know we could go on for quite a bit longer, but I said so this would be an hour program, and I want to thank our speakers. I also want to thank all of you who have asked such really great questions. That really, that really, your questions really enhance the call and obviously give um, the speakers a chance to address some, you know, some of the concerns that you all have. And, you know, I think that, um, uh, you know, so I, I just want to thank everybody on the call today. I also want to just, again, repeat that if indeed you have a question or had a if you either asked a question or had a question that you wanted to ask, your healthcare team, and I think we, a couple of our speakers have said this already, that we want you to go back to treating healthcare team with your questions. You could see this as a bit of a role play or a practice run of a question that you want to ask your healthcare team. And I think if you've heard nothing else on the call, the importance is really, you know, asking any question you have to your healthcare team. All questions are 
um, admissible, and all of our speakers, all of our doctors throughout the country want to hear what your questions are and concerns are. And you don't have to wait a month for your appointment if something is a concern to you. You can call the office, and you want to get those numbers. You want to have them available so that you can call. You wouldn't want to wait. I know many of you live in very in f very far away from your treating healthcare team. It could take you hours to get to your treatment, and if something comes up when you get home, it's important that you call your healthcare team. That's very important. We also know that you'd like to get information from credible sources, so we um, often recommend, um, in terms of AML, of course, leukemia lymphoma society is a wonderful resource. I think many of you know that. You may be using it. You certainly can call Cancer Care, um, and you also can call the National Cancer Institute um, as well. And we will be giving you all of those numbers um, in the um, when you get the evaluation, um, and some of you may have gotten them already in the materials we sent to you ahead of time. Most importantly, as we conclude our call today, we don't want any of you to feel alone in coping with AML or any type of cancer. We do want you to know that you're now part of really a very large community of support. There are a lot of organizations out there that can support you and that are for free, that don't cost anything. Um, and indeed, and, and of course, your healthcare team, they're there for you as well. And um, you do want to take advantage of all of these things. And in this instance, in terms of getting oh, practical assistance or financial assistance or just some counseling tips, um, these, all of these organizations, um, you can call them. You can call more than one. There's no rule that you can't call. You can only call one at a time. You, you can call as many. Whoever can help you is what you're really out there to get. So, although we recognize that you may at times feel alone, um, it's a normal feeling to have. That just to know, uh, practically speaking, you can pick up a phone and call organizations out there, and they will be there for you to help you. Um, and um, I also just want to suggest if you, if any of you like um, uh, meditation or relaxation apps to deal with things, we have a meditation app on our website at Cancer Care. And so for those of you who might be interested, you'll get information about that. And we do have an upcoming program on caring for your bones during and after cancer treatment. And that's a program that's happening on November 18th. So some of you have signed up for it. If you haven't and interested, please do. And I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.